Having languished in production hell for around 13 years, when Paul de Rios Anderson came to the Death Race project, there was a lot of uncertainty whether it would capture the spirit of the Roger Corman original Death Race 2000. At the time, the title still being bounced around, of course, being the highly original Death Race 3000. Now, with Anderson on board, he in many ways re envisioned the project, taking out the original concept, which saw a cross country race where competitors score points for running over pedestrians, instead, replacing it with a more traditional race course format with, of course, the added bonus of weapons and a trap-laden course. Anderson, at the same time, choosing to opt for practical effects over CGI, here seems to be in many ways taking many of his moves from the George Miller playbook, as here he brought to the forefront of vicious-looking vehicles and a heavy dose of vehicle, vehicle carnage to what is probably one of the more underrated efforts on his filmography, perhaps in many ways due to the result of Many seeing him as just the director of Resident Evil and instead choosing to ignore his earlier films such as Shopping and Event Horizon, which had shown him as a more visual director and in which Death Race certainly is very much a callback to. I'm Elwood. I'm Kim. And tonight we're going to be looking at Death Race. Let's take it to the booth. <laughs> to another exciting edition of Movies and Tea. Uh, we welcome you, of course, we welcome you all back to the booth. And we are now here on episode seven. We've now moved on to Death Race. So we're nearing the end of this first season. And I think, I, I don't want to say it, but I feel that this is sort of like the last hurrah for, for the good work, good films in the Paul W.S. Anderson filmography. Because after this, we've obviously got Three Musketeers, and then we've got Pompeii, which I don't think anyone's looking forward to. But enough about <laughs> that. Let's not, not focus on the negative here. And we're, we're obviously... Let's get back to the positive. Because, I mean, obviously, Death Race is one of my favourites. It's certainly something that excited me when we talked about doing Paul Devereux Sanson as our chosen director for the season one. I think it was Death Race and Event Horizon were, like, the two big films that I was, like, super excited about. Mortal Kombat as well, and... Is this sort of excitement that leads you to thinking, yeah, I'd do probably W.S. Anderson as our first chosen director to reevaluate their filmography. That seems like a great idea. You know, of course, forgetting we got like six Resident Evil movies and obviously we've got Pompeii at the arse end of this whole experience. But <laughs> which, which, to be fair, we were about to cut. And then I was like, well, you know, technically we shouldn't. So we might as well just do it. Yeah. <laughs> so... If we're all dreading it, it's because of me, and um, I'm so sorry because, I mean, I have to apologize to myself, too, because I have to put myself through it again. <laughs> Not enough to watch but, it you know. once. <laughs> but obviously, we're now 
win up to 2008 in the the filmography of Paul W.S. Anderson. I think at this point he is best known for obviously just that guy who did the Resident Evil movies. It's very hard to sort of detach. And I think with Resident, with Death Race, much like Alien vs. Predator, which we talked about in the last episode, these were the two films which saw him take a break from his Resident Evil sort of workings. And he was still very much attached to the pro- as the producer to those films. He was writing the films. But as in his own words, it was sort of like the studios wanted their Death Race movie. They wanted their Alien vs. Predator movie. So he was contractually obliged to do them. And it's kind of nice to see that while he was contractually sort of obliged to do these films. He wasn't just going for the motion and actually tried to do something unique and different with those films. I mean, obviously, Alien vs. Predator, we saw him trying to craft out a world that would sort of tie the two franchises together. With Death Race, um, this was a film that was sort of introduced and a lot of people were sort of like fans of Roger Corman original and were like, oh, it's going to be really naff because it's not people getting run over for sport. You know, it's completely different vision. And I think a lot of people dismissed it rather wrongly at the time as yeah. because it wasn't going to be just a straight remake. The fact it was going to be, you know, we're going to be having a racetrack format and obviously at the same time we're going to have Effley armored cars and it's going to have all these good elements, but people just like, oh, you're not running people up for, for like points. That I don't, where's, where's the fun in this going to be? But. Yeah, but I think that, you know, most people who went in to see Death Race, like, let, let me assume this, but I'm like, it might be a complete assumption, but I think that most people who went to go see Death Race was solely for Jason Statham. Like, they really, really like Jason Statham, so they would go see this because, you know, there is a certain, it's kind of like, I guess the person that pops in my head since I just came back from uh, Montreal Comic Con is that it's kind of like Danny Trejo. He, they have this kind of like image to them where Jason Statham does this sort of one type of movie and he has this character to him and this kind of like action and badassery in him that we, everybody really enjoys. So it's kind of like a guaranteed entertainment, just like, I mean, The Rock all has that sort of appeal. And I would say that most of the people who went to see Death Race, myself included, okay, myself included, because I didn't know it was directed by Paul W.S. Anderson when I first watched it. Like the fact that you either are in this because of the racing element or with Jason Statham or maybe a combination of both. Yeah, I mean, at this point, I mean, he'd done, he'd done two of the Transporter movies. So, I mean, at this point, he was sort of establishing himself as sort of like an action hero. Because, I mean, obviously, when he's first sort of introduced, he's doing like... Guy Ritchie movies, he was doing like Lockstock, he was doing like, doing Snatch. So I think yeah. a lot of people, they either saw him as like this comedic sort of cockney fellow, and then the obviously, obviously sort of like Transport who saw him, saw him uh, as this sort of like real ass kick. And I mean, that really came out of nowhere. I mean, that was, I don't think anyone expects him to be quite the ass kick that he's now obviously seen as. I mean, when he's coming into Death Race, I mean, he's done Crank, he's done, as we say, he's done two Transporter, two movies, so he's established himself as this action hero, and when he comes to, like, doing Death Race, I mean, he actually dropped down from 20% body fat to 9% body fat, and trained with all the uh, ex-Navy SEAL guys who did a lot of the training for the 300, so he uh, did all the, create, helped to get everyone in shape to play the Spartans, so um, I know that certainly when we posted the image from Death Race on our Instagram today, it's and they got a lot of likes from people who are clearly fans of Jason Simmons' image in, in this one because he is very shredded. I mean, 
Um, give us a yes. fan of bald bald men with funny accents. What do you think of uh, Jason Statham in this movie? <laughs> oh, no, I, I love Jason Statham all the time. Um, I'm actually, like, as we're reviewing his filmography right now, I've actually realized I've actually seen a lot of his movies, and I'm actually a big fan of, like, Crank and all that stuff. I like, I like like, high-octane, um, adrenaline rush movies. I'm kind of, like, very tomboyish. I don't think I ever lost that since I was a child. So I really like these kind of things, like guy things, as people call it. I mean, Death Race was was a thrill, you know, like it, it was great to see Jason Statham. But you also saw a lot of people like, you know, uh, you know, there was Tyrese Gibson. And obviously, you know, you got the main kind of villain bad guy of this was uh, was our bad lady, Joan Allen, who who I think did a really great job at the point that I've seen this. I actually haven't seen Joan Allen in many things. Yeah. So. I think she, I think eventually now I've seen a little bit more, but uh, this is still one of the roles that I, I kind of, rem- I remember her the most in because it was one of the first roles that I saw her in. Um, I mean, people are probably going to hate me. They're going to be like, oh, you know, there's like a thousand other roles that she did better, but you know, it's usually the first role that kind of sticks out <laughs> the best. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, I mean, the whole reason she took the role in the first place, I mean, she was Anderson's first choice to play the female warden. And he didn't think she was going to take it up, but she wanted to shake up her image from the films she'd been doing at the time. So um, she was really sort of keen to sign up and uh, play this film award. And it's a great role that she obviously is playing here because she has all this sort of power and she uses that um, to, be, to create this sort of threatening force in the in the film. She's not; She doesn't have to be physically aggressive like everyone else in the film is because she essentially holds all the power she holds all the cards she chooses who gets to win and lose the death race essentially because i mean we're obviously in in this vision of the death race world society has basically collapsed so the corporations have take taken over the prison system and in doing so they can basically run them how they want so they've started they are started out doing gladiatorial combat between inmates and yeah. Obviously, the audiences get bored, so they started creating new events, and one of those, of course, being the Death Race tournaments, mm-hmm. which they now stream live uh, for thousands upon thousands of fans who tune in to watch these races. And yeah, yeah. the top racer is a racer called Frankenstein, who is wears this metal mask, and at the start of the film, we see he get blown up. Mm-hmm. He gets essentially a uh, double-crossed, and Jason Seven's uh, character is is first of all he's framed for the murder of his wife and he's brought into terminal islands where these races take place and mm-hmm. he's given the option of taking on the mantle of frankenstein and all he has to do is essentially win one race and he will win his freedom um and he enters into this world where few people know who that he's obviously playing this fake frankenstein but all the other sort of rival racers still think he's this frankenstein guy so He's right from the start entered into this complete beef with uh, the other favourite um, called Machine Gun Joe, who is basically got this whole aura of being gay <laughs> around him because he uses male co-pilots where everyone else has to use female co-pilots because, you know, sex sells. So they import all these female prisoners to be co-pilots. And I have to say that it's just very blatant sort of an attempt to sex the film up a bit because these co-pilots serve no purpose whatsoever apart from, like, saying what's directly in front. Yeah. Which, you know, technically if you have eyes, you can see it, right? 
Um, but they, but you know, they do have this, you know, this thing of like navigating it and it adds this like extra layer of kind of like, you know, we finally get this whole image of, um, Hennessy, which is Joan Allen. Um, and, and you know, the, the things she's doing under the table as we realize that, um, everybody is in, everybody wants out pretty much. And this is like the selfish world that they're in. And, uh, while it seems like you're teaming up and you have to do all this, um, you know, there are things they need to do that isn't so simple that, you know, obviously it's not so easy to win that that last race. And we saw as the audience already that everything went wrong pretty much at the fan. And it was it was not great. That led to the blow up of the last Frankenstein. <laughs> and, you know, it's just, you know, I think that is I think the funniest part going into this is that this movie was made in 2008. And it's funny that the storyline is not really that much propelled forward, uh, where, you know, everything starts like the economy collapses in 2012. And when we look at it now, it's 2018 and we don't have a terminal island and we don't have that sort of thing. It's like this bleak outlook on like the immediate future. Right. Like we're 10 years down the road from the from what the, where this movie is. And it's just it's just crazy to imagine, like, if that world had actually happened, what would what would be the, the case? Right. Oh, I don't know. Trump's <laughs> Trump's got a little bit longer to get us there, so uh, don't be surprised. <laughs> I'm just going to say, don't be surprised if we start seeing death rates in the near future. The way we're going <laughs> this is how we're going to make America great again by holding motorized death races. This is uh, this is obviously a near future, near future sort of turn down line, and I love the fact that we're obviously we open up in the steelworks where Jason Statham's character is working, uh, Jensen Ames. And uh, it, I have to say, for steelworks that's going out of business, they seem pretty busy, uh, which obviously <laughs> made no sense. Um, and obviously, when obviously the, the the workers are all very unhappy about about it, so we see them, Jason turns character right from the start. We can see he can handle himself because he's there beating up riot cops, and it's you can tell the British influence of Anderson here because the riot cops uh, turn up and they're beating the shields, which is a very British riot cop move. American riot cops don't traditionally beat their shields. It's only when you see British uh, riot dispersal that our riot uh, police tend to beat their shields. It's a very Zulu-style tactic. We tend to use these for some intimidation. But it was nice to obviously see those uh, the British influences in there. And I have to say that Anton is such a, once again, showing his fanboy self, because when we see Frankenstein at the beginning, He's voiced by David Carradine, who played the Frankenstein in the original Death Race from 1975. So it's nice that he obviously has these little nods, even though he's essentially rebooting it. He still sees this as being a prequel. Um, so in his world, that we start off on Terminal Island, and then we obviously we have to evolve the races again. So we take it out onto the streets and run people over. That's what the evolution of the death races is going to be. It should also be noted that this is a Christmas movie. So if you want someone to turn a Christmas view and you can class this because it is set at Christmas. That is true. I actually didn't remember that. Those little details. You know, we were talking, you're talking about the setting and like where it starts. And I'm thinking about it right now. And I'm like, you know, it's one thing that we really like Paul Anderson for, because I feel like even with a setting like death race, which is, you know, in concept, a very simple premise, you know, yeah. it's just about, uh, just about, you know, uh, prisoners that have to race in this, in this online event that, you know, to, to get out of prison pretty much for these like crazily, you know, they're, they're, they just have heavy sentences. 
just from like how he starts, because he doesn't have to start from like, you know, how how like Jason Statham was at the steelworks and all that stuff. But I think that by doing that, just instead of just having like the words of the economy collapse and the stuff in the beginning, it really gives you an image of the world that has changed in America, like how it has changed the economy and just setting the stage for just pretty much how messed up this uh, future dystopia in, in America is. And I feel that like, while it's not necessary that he necessarily uh, essential that he does it, I like the fact that he set that stage up so that we have a better understanding of this world that, that, that has evolved. I mean, this has always been the thing when we've looked at any of Anderson's filmography. They've always been worlds which follow very simple sort of set rules. And he's very good at keeping to his rules. And it's when we get into the death races, it's all very sort of laid out. And it's it's great the fact that we get an infograph. So we're watching it as a viewer of the death races. And it's sort of like each racer has to win five races. And it takes place over three days. And these are... The world, these are the races who are taking part and it's all sort of like flash cuts and yeah. it's all very sort of sharp and it at this point he's actually calmed down his editing enough to allow us to focus on an image rather than just like going oh look at this and this and this and this and this like yeah. we saw in like the last Resident Evil movie where it seems that every cut can only last about two seconds before he has to look at something else um, here he actually takes time to do focus and give us those wonderful central shots that his so renowned for, I think the only yeah. thing that he tones down is his love of endless corridors, which I think here is just result sort of boiled down to a bridge, which is the well, only a bridge. bridge and a tunnel, off. you know that that under that that tunnel that they had to go through was kind of like a long corridor, and then yeah. they had the long bridge, and he really does tone it down. But I mean, like this one, I think the most effective part was um, it's just shot so nice because of you know the whole like. Um, the God's eye view that he's really good at and just really taking in that uh, that island, you know, and the race course and just seeing it from above. And as it pans around, you see where all the soldiers are and you see just the whole like where, like, say, where Joan Allen is looking at everybody and and just, you know, that sort of thing. And I really love the the idea of how he like kind of gives us so much information with just panning his camera and stuff. Another character I want to just quickly touch upon is Jason Clark's sort of second in command, the prison guard, Mr. Uric. Um, and certainly something I noticed on this, this watch through is that there's a real um, homoerotic undertone and certainly a, um, a, a tone to him because he seems to take a very hands-on approach to when Ames comes into prison. I mean, he's there, he's lighting him up, he's hosing him down. He's sort of like, this is very strong interest in seeing him naked and humiliating him, which I really got this sort of real homosexual vibe from his character. And he, he's constantly got this sort of fascination to him. These shows in none of the other prisoners in, in there, but any sort of opportunity to see Ames nude, he seems to constantly be there. So, um, and it's, it's, I mean, it's surprising they didn't really do more with him. Cause I mean, he's obviously seen as the second in command for, uh, Hennessy. And yeah, all he seems to do is to basically follow her around and do a bit of general beating up of uh, Ames. Yeah, some dirty course. work, you know. And um, it surprised me they didn't really do more. They didn't have him like come in as a driver or something like else like that. And um, that he's basically just there to shadow Hennessy around the whole film. I feel it, it would just felt like a missed opportunity with his character, but uh, certainly it felt like there was certainly a. a 
uh, homosexual undertone. And certainly when we look at Machine Gun Joe, there's, there's many of the other prisoners claim that he's gay. That's why he has to have male co-pilots. Um, while it's never obviously confirmed, it does also seem in many ways when we look at how Machine Gun Go talks to his co-pilots, how he treats them, the fact that they had to make a male because it would become very uncomfortable if he was doing these same actions to a female co-pilot like the other uh, drivers have. Because um, he's like constantly humiliating him. He beats one up at one point. He certainly kicks another out of the car while it's moving. So it's a lot of violence against men we can... We as the audience uh, find Eve's stomach, but if it was to a woman, it would uh, for a female character, we just it wouldn't be um, acceptable. And it made me wonder why they gave him such that brutal edge, um, because yeah, I mean he's a sociopath, but at the same time he just seems to be like constantly pushing him. So he's like not the sort of character that you would see Ames as ever wanting to ally himself with, even though he's clearly this the other top racer on the track. I don't know. I mean, there's there's this aspect of Death Race um, that while I, I I love this film, I love watching it, I mean, I think that's that's something I got to say at first. No matter, like, how I feel about it, um, certain aspects of it, like, I don't know, Machine Gun Joe is kind of this character which I think it was to be kind of a, a contrast to Jason Statham's character. Because... Jason Statham is kind of like, you know, he's not really a criminal. He was framed and he was put in there, you know, yeah. and he wants to be a better person. And he always talks about, you know, how uh, he wants, he, he want like, he wanted, like, it was his wife saw him as more. So he wanted to be more. And he's always doing that. And you can see from when he enters into his first race that he really was just doing what he needed to do. But he never was, like, very violent until he realized that, you know, he was being double-crossed and they were kind of messing with him and they were bringing out this monster that that they wanted to bring out a monster in him um, that, you know, he really kind of, like, he really, like, kind of gets into the more brutal side of him. And I feel that that's, that's kind of, like, the evolution of his character. Just like Machine Gun Joe, you kind of see him as this really... It's kind of like... I don't know if he was really uh, the concept was that he was homosexual. I would think it was just the fact that he was people say that because of the drivers, but then it's because he was so brutal. But was it really necessary for his character to be that way? Um, I think it's just because it's like a typical um, role because you kind of have different characters here and they all have their kind of like. Um, how do you say it? Like they have this kind of like stereotypical jail kind of feeling to them, yeah. whether it's like the 14 K played by Robin show and, or you have like uh, Pachenko, which, um, which, you know, it, it has a kind of a deeper history with, uh, uh, with uh, Jensen Ames, which is a uh, Jason Statham's character. Everybody has this attitude and they're kind of like different backgrounds as well. So they have a different way of carrying themselves as uh, a criminal and a badass kind of like character. So I feel like that's why they set Machine Gun Joe like that. Is he actually homosexual? I think it's not. I think it's just the fact that he's so brutal. And, you know, you see these guys at the end when they have to change the drivers after he kicks one out. They're like, no, I don't want to go. No, you know, don't choose me. Like, it's a completely different from the women where the women, they want to be doing this because they want to get out. 
Whereas yeah. these guys are like, I don't care if I get out. I just want to be alive because there's like <laughs> almost an 80% chance that these they're, they're not going to make it out of this alive. And, and it's just, I think it's kind of like this funny element. It adds this kind of like dark humor to it because you start realizing through the course of the film that these guys, no matter how close they are to kind of getting out, they always end up dead. Mm. They always have the bad luck and end up like shielding this machine gun show, you know? Um, I mean, the other reason I bring it up is that when we have the, at the end, um, it looks like he's going to escape with his, his driver is going to survive, but then his machine, his, uh, drive, yeah. his sort of co-driver pilot, um, gets machine gun death and he has like a, an almost sad expression, like, a like someone who's lost someone very close to them. And it just, as I said, it just made me wonder, was this, that you get the feeling that there was some sort of deeper connection he hoped to this particular co-pilot that he hand had to the others just the expression he has when he looks over at them being like riddled um i don't i don't, I didn't really get that that's the thing is i didn't really get that i actually found it kind of like in a comedic way because the way i remembered it was that his co-pilot gets shot during the final moments right yeah and and he kind of looks over and he's kind of like whoa what just happened and then he starts like touching himself to make sure like that he didn't get shot and then it's kind of like a relief that goes over his face where it's just like whoa you know that just happened none of that got me but it got this dude you know yeah i mean certainly something you were talking about when we talk about the race the different personalities that we have because it's a real colorful bunch and i think that's part of the charm of this uh death race movie and something that was certainly lost when we get into the sequels uh which we'll touch on a bit later but (laughs) this film very much follows into the fact that you have Good convicts and bad convicts. And yeah. all the people on Jason Seven's side, they're in crimes of like crimes of like passion or they're there like they've been framed. So like Jason Seven's character, he's been framed. His co pilot, Chase, she had an abusive cop as her husband who she killed and that's why she's in prison. Uh Liss is in prison because he killed his mother, who we can guess from his personality was abusive to him, so like a real Norman Bates style situation going on there. We've got Ian McShane as coach, who is actually a free man, but he can't cope in the outside world. And, you know, everything's gone to pot. He stays on and works on the death races. And then we compare it to, obviously, the rival races. And we look at, like, Pachenko, who's like an Aryan Brotherhood leader. We've got uh, Robert Lasado as Hector Grimm, who's a.k.a. the Grim Reaper, who sees Hennessy as the avatar as the Hindu goddess of death. Um, which is just, I mean, it's Lasado basically doing what Lasado does, and that's just basically to be the scary criminal element. Uh, Robin Shaw here, unrecognizable without his yeah, feathered yeah. hair. He's uh, bold, and he actually had, it was only when I looked it up after the first time I watched it, it was like, oh my god, that's Robin Shaw from Mortal Kombat. It's good that yeah, he's yeah. still getting work, and he's awesome as 14K. I mean, he's of course he's a triad because yeah, of course yeah. he. You can't have any sort of Asian criminal without them being a triad, same as you can't have a Japanese criminal without them being Yakuza. It seems to always be the rules you have to follow, but they at least give him some depth. I mean, he was, his father sent him to business school, so he has a degree from MIT, and yet he's still in prison, so that really worked <laughs> out for him. Um, <laughs> and then we. Yeah, but, you know, I mean, I before we keep on going, with those characters i have to say like part of me when i was watching this again i was like man does like anderson 
literally had like love for video games because like when he's introducing these like characters in 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 like um the even like as they're going through the prison and they're talking about these different characters and these different racers like they have this moment where you have the racer standing right next to the car it's very where it's kind of like they just pan over this character and then there's like the name that pops up and you see like they're leaning against a cool ride and <laughs> I don't know. I'm getting like real flashbacks. Like I'm choosing like a racer from. <laughs> it's very entertaining. I don't know. I, I find like the way he shot this is so. I feel that Anderson is kind of underappreciated also because he really has the stylistic approach that people never get to experience because they see him as like the crappy Resident Evil franchise guy, you know. And I, I find that such a shame. Oh yeah, it's definitely there's definitely a video game vibe there. It's, it's like you say, it's like you're playing Twisted Metal or Vigilante Eight. It's like one of those sort of like vehicular shoot 'em up sort of games. Because when these characters are introduced, they are they are essentially just like video game archetypes. It's sort of like, oh, you can be the crazy Russian or you can be the ex NASCAR driver, and they they've all got these. Uh, some of the drivers get a little more developed than others. Um, it all sort of it gives you enough to work with so you get the idea and on the track and it makes them a little less disposable even though um some of these characters are sort of wiped out pretty darn quick um certainly when we get into the actual race elements i mean this is what we're all basically here for um it's so you can see why roger Corman was so keen to work with anderson on this film because i mean he's the re- main reason that he brought uh, anderson to the project was that he saw shopping and saw here how he handled the car sequences and chopping and that you can see it again mm-hmm. when we look at these sequences the way the cars roll the way these cars drive and certainly yeah. the stunt work uh involved here is very reminiscent to obviously what we saw way back in that that debut film and it's great the fact he's able to recall that i for doing car stunt work in particular and it's the fact that it's all practical effects for the most part. I mean, there's spotches of CGI here and there. It just gives it so much more presence than if they were doing this like with CGI cars or, or whatnot. So, um, again, this all falls down to just his, his eye to detail here because all the cars he's using are all like filled sort of like powerful, heavy, muscular cars. Uh, there's no sort of like dainty little racing cars. This isn't like Fast and Furious. These are all like, big brutish cars that all got like very offensive weapons on i mean they're like a lot of them are very american they're they're all like they i think they're all they all look like american muscle car like uh machine gun joe drives like something that's very like ford f-150 kind of like a pickup truck and you know um and like uh i think uh i think um What's what's uh, Jason Statham is driving another like very muscle car. It's very reminiscent of I don't know. I mean I don't know cars. We You're have to call to a gamer, to. sun gamer, to talk about this. I don't know this <laughs> stuff. Uh, <laughs> yeah, he's driving Dodge Challenger. Um, I mean I'm such a nerd for this bloody film. When I was playing G- when you played GTA Five online, I actually built the car from, his car from Death Race, and for a lot, for the best part of a year, I just spent the time with my character dressed as <laughs> Frankenstein. This movie just going around because I just thought it was the coolest mm-hmm. thing. But yeah, I mean, these guys, it's all, they're all, like, arms to deep. I mean, they went through, like, four tons of blank ammunition filming this. And when you see the slow-mo shots of the shells, like, raining down and just the sound design in particular, it's yeah. oh, it's fantastic. I mean, if you're going to fire yeah. hundreds of thousands and thousands of rounds off, then uh, 
than show me on screen and that's certainly what it delivers here um yeah. i mean the sound design the soundtrack like just like the music they choose for it is just so suitable for this film itself and i it's one thing that really stands out for it also yeah um obviously with the the car action here i mean we obviously have the change of pace because we're no longer running people over for points we're on the track and they have to run over different bumpers to activate weapons and shields and um spike traps on the track which is really cool sort of idea and it keeps everything sort of fairly on the level at the same time hennessy apparently to spice things up introduces her own racer which is basically a huge truck called the leviathan which i think is up there if we're talking about coolest movie vehicles of all time the leviathan is up there it's not only the most cheaty vehicle of all time because it's got like a tank cannon and like more guns than anyone else has and basically <laughs> easily eliminates half the racing field um but it's so damn cool to see that truck on there. Yeah, it's like it's like the it has everything on it. It has like cannons and uh it's just it's just ridiculous. Like you see this thing come out and they're just like, you know, the people are like, What just happened? What is that? You know, like and you can just see everyone's face is like they don't know what to do, you know, how to, and then and then I think that's what makes it so cool that, you know, they're it's as big as this truck is they're able to kind of like cheat the system a little and and kind of like you know obviously we're we're i think i think nearing we're nearing the end of this right now so we're, we might be heading into some spoilers so let's get into the spoiler alert right now um where uh you know like they they do the unexpected and he teams up with machine gun joe for the first time despite their rivalry to kind of survive out of this because you know, you don't you don't get out of prison without surviving the race. Um, so, I mean, they team up and you just see this beast explode when they like it, like activate that death head um, plate, and it's 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 just quite the scene to watch. I find. Oh yeah, I I mean, I was watching again. I can't tell if that's like a real truck that flipped or or what's going on here. But I mean, they flipped this truck before Dark Knight. Now, everyone raves on about the truck flip from Dark Knight, but this film actually flipped a truck before Dark Knight. I mean, we could obviously go back even further and look at Battle Truck, which flipped a truck back in the 70s. But, yeah, this is so cool. And the fact it's shot in slow motion, I can't tell if this is like a real truck or, or if it's yeah. a CGI truck, but certainly it's it's like a, almost a voyeuristic camera angle that he's like shoots yeah. this big, the carnage of this truck, like, essentially disintegrating as it uh, comes to a sudden stop. Um, but yeah, it's, um, I love the way that Leviathan, oh, the, in, from the first race, it's like into the background. It's like, oh, what are they building back there? Because you yeah. see it's all behind the curtain. And then suddenly like, what was behind the curtain is now missing. And it's like, oh guys. And then suddenly it's like, big truck comes thundering out and it's bringing back memories of like Mad Max 2's finale. Cause obviously that used the big truck and it works perfectly because they're not slowing down. Everything's going full pelt here. And it's shown as being like this dominating force just in how it's eliminating races left, right. And obviously 14K's driver gets one of the worst deaths because she gets spiked. And uh, he gets a pretty cool death as well, which I won't, not, won't uh, ruin. But yeah, I was. Um, I think the Leviathan's like one of the absolute highlights of this because you think, oh, I've, I'm on the level of what we're going to see here. And then... It just comes out of nowhere. So sort of like, oh, I just throw in a big truck. Yeah. yeah. Um, and I think it, as I said, it's just, it's just genius, and it and it works so well. 
Yeah, for sure. I, I think that, you know, another thing about, I think one of the things as I rewatch this is that um, Death Race is kind of like a lot of racing movies that we see nowadays. It's kind of like a little bit, it, it has that over-the-top aspect, which is kind of like Anderson's thing. He kind of has that over-the-top feeling for yeah. some of his movies. Um, it's kind of a style, and it works really well for him. Uh, but, you know, here is like, you have this kind of like, um, I guess it's a little bit of suspension of belief where, you know, where where we don't understand why the steel mill is so still in full, full is so busy when they're about to close. It's the same thing where, you know, you have that ending part where um, Ulrich goes to like plant this thing when plant this thing in the car when Hennessy is making her hot air speech, you know, <laughs> she's just spouting this random thing. Everybody's like, what the hell is she talking about? What, where is she getting to, you know? And then in the background, you see this thing going in and you're just like, and then you watch the scene that they're not even going out to race right away. And you're just kind of like, okay, well, that's really weird. <laughs> oh yeah. There's, I mean, it's certainly got its flaws. I mean, why do people smoke next to the palm tanks? Yeah. <laughs> it's like, what the hell? Um, yeah. But, you know, I mean, you know, like, it you, plays to its strengths. Yeah, exactly. But I, I think that, you know, for people who appreciate movies like this, it, it it's that's why we always say this is Anderson is very stylistic, but he also is kind of like he has his own market um, in that sense where you have to really appreciate this kind of movie, especially with Death Race or like Mortal Kombat or something like that. Right. It, it's something a little bit there's like kind of a little bit cheeky or there's a little bit over the top, um, um, some suspension of belief, that sort of thing. And racing films have that. And I think that this one also has that kind of feeling where there are things that don't make sense. But because of the entertainment level and the exciting feeling you have and just like the fast paced, high octane adrenaline thing, a lot of it you don't really think that much about. And you can kind of dismiss it because, you know, it is the future and, um, you know, we don't really have like only a few of the characters really go really in depth. Um, but, you know, I mean, I'm just putting it out there as in like, you know, there are some flaws with the narrative itself and like the flow of events. But it uh, doesn't know, it doesn't stop me from loving like how this how this film comes together. Yeah, I mean, I mean, there's so many aspects. I mean, it's plays to it. it. It knows when to play to its strength. It's like, what do we want Jason Stone to do? We want him to say funny one lines in a Cockney accent and punch people. <laughs> yes, he does that. We get to see Emmett Shane. Just every scene Emmett Shane's in is just brilliant. He doesn't have a have a bad line in this whole thing. Even if he's spouting off like a corny one liner, like. That's entertainment, or uh, nobody messes with yeah. my car. It's it somehow works uh, for him, and I think he really sort of is the element that's obviously missing. Because I mean, obviously, when we get into <laughs> the sequels, uh, which went direct to DVD, um, his character is essentially replaced by Danny Trejo, which isn't bad. Um, but I think Ian Machine said he. He set a different um, level here, and I think he really—you can t understand his character's motivation, and it, it just really sort of works as a sort of mentor character to Ames's character. Um, I think I think it, there's just as I said, there's just every all the bits of this film just sold some somehow just come together, and they just work really well. Um, but yeah, I mean, I mean, as I said, I'm just a big old nerd for this movie i just love it so much i mean it's i've seen it so many times and it's still fun 
So yeah, yeah, no, I mean, I, I'm, <laughs> I mean, anybody who who frequents the Tranquil Dream site knows that I'm a big fan of racing films. Um, I I'm like Fast and the Furious all the way. I love I love films like that. I mean, I even like Need for Speed, and everybody hated that film. Um, I mean, I I have like I like a lot of these films. I like especially like Jason Statham. You know, we're gonna go into recommendations very soon, I suppose, for like uh, what films we pair with this one, and uh, you're definitely gonna see some of those things coming up. <laughs> yeah, definitely don't watch Death Race Two. Okay, uh, Death Race Two. I mean, it, our lead is replaced by the woeful Luke Goss. I I mean, I I Luke Goss has done two two good performances in Hellboy Two and Blade Two. And both of those were Del Toro, which really bodes well for season two. But Lucas constantly has his face of someone who's like crop dusting and trying to hide it. He's just like constantly tries to do that. That Jason Stevum, he's like a poor man's Jason Stevum. Every time I see him on the screen, he's just so awful. And unfortunately, we get him for two of these bloody Death Race movies. Uh, Death Race Three Inferno isn't bad, but uh, Death Race Two is just awful, awful, awful. Um, avoid it. Like the plague, even though uh, Paul W. Sanson, who seems to have a devotion to franchises, did actually uh, write, do the scripts, and he produced that one. Um, evidently, he didn't feel, feel that director video was the market he wanted to do for a sequel, so he kind of left that one alone. So, <laughs> and went back to his Resident Evil films. So, yeah, well, you know, Resident Evil is done now, so we we're we're, we're <laughs> I mean. I think that Resident Evil boded a lot better than the next two films we'll be talking about anyways. Um, it's how I feel about it. <laughs> it's, a it's like, it's like, hmm, I can go and hang out with my hot wife or I can hang out with Luke Goss. Oh, what a, what a choice that is. <laughs> so, further viewing, uh, what would you like to pair with Death Race? I mean, there's, there's certainly a wide field of films that, that yeah. work with Death Race, I would say. Yeah, for sure. Um, I mean, if I, I think we mentioned a lot of it during it. I mean, I definitely say something like Fast and the Furious is a good one to go for if you're into like kind of like a over-the-top uh, racing sort of thing. Maybe some of the later titles, not some of the first ones. Uh, <laughs> those, <laughs> um but then, you know, maybe like something like, I don't know, Fast and Furious 4 or 5 or something like that. Um, and, I mean, if you talk about, like, just high octane, Jason Statham, I mean, I I think Crank is a really good one that kind of really hones into this kind of, like, one-liner, uh, fast-paced story. There's not a whole lot of driving in it, I think. I think there might be some. Uh, I can't remember some. Crank, yeah, there is some. I mean, you don't get high octane without having some kind of driving to move. You can't just run all the time. <laughs> I think that that's where it is. I, I don't, I don't really know um, what to pair with it, but I think, I think those two would be nice. Like something like something else that would be Jason Statham, which is very fast paced, and um, I think Crank really fits that bill. Yeah, I mean, obviously, I mean, my first one would obviously be say to go back and watch like the nine to seventy five Death Race two thousand. Um, it's, as I said, it, it's rather camp and stars an, an early appearance by Sylvester Sloan as Machine Gun Joe. Um, it also features David Carradine and Frankenstein. All of the racers drive these very themed cars. So Machine Gun Joe has, like, um, actual, like, Tommy guns on the front of his car. Uh, Frankenstein's got, like, a real monster sort of car. And it's, uh, you know, it's a fun time. I mean, it's, it, you can certainly watch worse films out there. It's such as, like, you know, 
Death Race 2. Oh, anything with Luke Goss in it. Um, but my choice, I mean, what I would actually pair it to if you wanted to obviously avoid the more obvious choices, like, you know, watching like the Man Max movies, which I'd say mm-hmm. it's a very close comparison to. I mean, obviously he very does very well from that George Miller uh, playbook, but um, I would actually say uh, to watch uh, Redline from 2009, which is a science fiction auto racing anime produced by Madhouse. And basically it's similar plot to uh, Death Racing, the fact that you have these racers from around the world who are going across this this interplanetary race across the galaxy. So it's, again, it's all colourful car, colorful characters, big cars, and lots of uh, driving action. But it's a really stunningly animated film. It's directed by uh, Takashi Kiyoke. And is one of those sort of more modern animes that falls in the sort of same... Like, so like Summer Wars and Mara Miracle and uh, Yonny Yonny Penguin. It's all sort of very sort of different sort of anime film than what you expect. It's not all just all wide eyes and mecha and <laughs> randomness. It's, uh, it's, as I said, it's a real solid racing uh, flick. And especially if you love colourful characters, this one's got it by the uh, shed load. So that will be, uh, <laughs> yeah. be my pick. Awesome. That was it brings us then to another edition of Movies and Tea. Thank you, as always, for listening. Um, Kim, where are we going now? I mean, obviously we have two movies left, but what is next on the slate? Next is uh, we're heading to 2011's The Three Musketeers, which, um, you know, it's the Three Musketeers story. I don't know what else you want me to say about it. Uh, it has what uh, Matthew McFadden, um, obviously his wife is in it, Mila Jovovich, um, Luke Evans. I'm looking at the list right now. Uh, Logan Lerman. Um, I haven't seen this before. Have you? I've seen it once. Okay. Um, okay. So. I mean, it's, it's basically a steampunk reworking of uh, the Alexander Dumas's classic novel, The Three Musketeers. Clearly because, obviously, The Three Musketeers at this point have been done to death with the Oliver Reed version and the very underrated Charlie Sheen version. So... Anson coming to the Free Musketeers property gives it a steampunk overworking, and we get to see old Legolas himself playing a villain, which is a, a fun turn of phrase. So <laughs> it's certainly one of his more overlooked ones, but we'll obviously find out whether that's with good cause or not when we uh, obviously look at the next episode. But uh, in the meantime, if you do want to follow us, you can do it on Facebook or Twitter. Um, we are also got our blog, which you can uh, listen not only to all the episodes in our archive, but you can also check out fun bits of writing on our, this season's just director, Paul W.S. Anson. You can find that at moviesandteapodcast.wordpress.com. Um, and you, uh, also please do uh, like or hit the subscribe button if you listen to us on Podomatic or iTunes or Stitcher or basically anywhere good podcasts are found at this point. We are there. Um, it all helps us, uh, especially if... Um, any sort of reviews uh, that you want to leave us, it all helps us uh, get a little more notice, a little more up the rankings. So thank you, of course, for listening. And thank you, of course, my co-host, Miss Kim Love. Thanks, everyone, for uh, listening to this. And obviously, thank you. And we will be back next time uh, looking at The Three Musketeers.
Grown woman and she loved me back Made me a grown ass man Now what you think of these? 